How do you like to travel? Eric Weiner recommends a cross-country trip by train for a welcome kind of intimacy with your fellow passengers. And you have these conversations with people that you just wouldn't have at 30,000 feet. For astronaut Chris Hadfield, the view from 250 miles out in space shook up how he saw the Earth. He explains what taking photographs from the space station showed him. You really see a global perspective, but with a huge respect for the history that got us where we are. Seeing the art and architecture of the Italian Renaissance up close can be a revelation. As you stroll the streets of Florence, tour guide Anna Piccarato points out how the achievements of the 15th century influence who we are today. And it's not just a beautiful building, but the function of the Hospital of the Innocents really embodies the humanistic spirit that is now running through Florence. From Amtrak to the space station and Renaissance Florence, come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. Some of the greatest views on Earth are from 250 miles out in space. In just a bit, astronaut Chris Hadfield tells us how he photographed the Earth going 17,000 miles an hour where the challenges of light and clouds take on a whole new dimension. And we'll explore some of humanity's greatest cultural achievements on the streets of Renaissance Florence. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with author Eric Weiner. He recommends seeing the USA from a long-distance train ride on Amtrak. Our interview with Eric was recorded just before the COVID shutdowns kicked in. When we travel, it's fun to see the world from a different perspective. Eric Weiner believes travel by train offers a rare combination of expansiveness and coziness. He spent a lot of time traveling by train while reading the work of great philosophers, and for him, it goes together beautifully. He writes about that in his latest book, The Socrates Express. Eric, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So you actually took the train from Washington, D.C. to Portland. That's 64 hours. You could have flown in about five hours. There's just nothing rational about that. No, it makes no sense. It makes no sense from a time point of view, obviously. It makes no sense from a financial point of view. Uh, it really doesn't make sense from a mental health point of view either. But I loved it. What can I say? Um, <laughs> I, I loved every every minute of it, every hour of it. You know, it wasn't always... It's not the most glamorous way to travel, but there's just something, just something awfully compelling about well, it. Well, you made a very good case of that. First of all, you talked about the people you shared the platform with. I mean, okay, you're standing on the platform with uh, surrounded by 20 or 30 people waiting to get onto that uh, train. Who are they? Ah, okay. I'm going to do this quickly. There are four, I just determined there are four categories of long-distance Amtrak travelers. Okay. Uh, number one is retired people with lots of time on their hands. Number two is people who are afraid of flying. These are my compatriots, too. Uh, they take the train. Number three are foamers. A foamer is a rail enthusiast who gets very excited about locomotives and other things like that. You mean so they foam um, at the mouth? They're so excited? They foam at the mouth. <laughs> That's the idea. Okay. Uh, you care to take a guess at what the fourth category is? You'll never guess. So I'll uh, tell you, it's Mennonites. Mennonites. Lots of Mennonites. On Mennonites. The train. They, you mean like yes, like they, uh, Luddites or people that don't want modern uh, technology? Well, they uh, apparently they... Uh, 
they can uh, not fly, but they can travel by train long distances. Okay. So these are the four categories. And then there was me, and I don't fit any of those categories. I was a category unto myself. But you're kind of the opposite because you, you mentioned you have chronophobia, which is a, a fear of lack of time, and, and you did yes. just the opposite. Is that some kind of therapy? It, it was. It was sort of this, uh, what, so you, you desensitize yourself to it. Well, I always, you know, feel that you know, time is valuable and I need to be making the best use of it. And when you're on the train for some 60 plus hours, you're just, you're forced to slow down. I mean, you either go crazy or you slow down. Those are your two choices. Um, and I decided to slow down because mm-hmm. that train is going to get to Portland at its own pace and there's nothing you can do about it. And it will stop occasionally for an hour or two for no apparent reason whatsoever mm-hmm. and then start up again for no apparent reason. And I would ask my fellow passengers, well, why have we stopped? And they would just laugh at me like, huh. We got a new one. We got a we got a rookie here. <laughs> got a in, rookie. In, in Amtrakistan, you do not ask why. He, he <laughs> thinks is. you think human beings are more important than freight. Right. We do. We we wait for freight trains because Amtrak does not own most of the tracks across the country. The freight trains. Every time I go to Portland, Derek, from Seattle on the train, I think I'm doing something nice for the environment and so on, or it's just kind of a cool thing to do. And it's frustrating because I have chronophobia also, and I don't know why we're waiting here. And somebody reminded me, yeah, freight trains get priority over humans in the United States. That's not the case in Europe, but in the United States, that's the case. But for those of us who, like you and me, have a, a fear of lack of time where, where we schedule things, it's pedal to the metal. It's interesting how a, a long trip on a train, you mentioned it was like you hit a mother load of time. Suddenly, you had this big gift that I guess you got more time just by slowing down. Right. And, and it's it's forced, right? Because you can't go off and say, well, I'm going to go into into town and, and fire up the laptop and get some work done. I mean, you're on the train and you stay on the train and it's, and you go through it. I went through an interesting cycle. At first I thought, oh, this is great. I've got all this time. This is really good. I should do something. And then I just got antsy and I started rearranging my little roomette and moving things around and and I started to go a little bonkers, like I needed to do something. And eventually I came to acceptance that, that it was going to take a really long time to get to Portland and I needed to just go with the flow. And uh, it took me a while. I think uh, somewhere around Montana I hit acceptance and it was there. So talk about, you, you wrote about that so, so beautifully, roomette number 009. That was it. Yep. You remember. Good. Good mm-hmm. memory. And it, uh, you know, they just, they pack in... Into, this is about the size of like uh, the back seat of a of a Honda Accord, okay? Roughly the interior of a Honda Accord. Right. You know, they've got a table with two chairs and two beds and a little closet that I didn't notice until Illinois. And they've got reading lamps and a chess table and coat hangers and waste baskets. And they squeeze it all in. And I have to give Amtrak credit. It, it's a great feat of engineering that Roomette 009 had so much going on. So that's your your home base, and then you're you're on this train for what sixty four hours. So that's so uh, it's it's four days and three nights. Four days and three nights. You found um, creative ways to um, pass the time. I mean, uh, a pastime. A lot of people they knit. That's their pastime. What was your pastime to spend three days on the train? Well, I read, of course, and uh, I would just gaze out the window mm-hmm. <laughs> in a kind of, uh, I call it an Amtrance. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you're just looking out the window and you're not judging and you're not looking for anything in particular. And I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed sort of 
chatting with my fellow passengers who always fit into one of these four categories that we talked about right. earlier. And you have these conversations with people that you just wouldn't have at 30,000 feet. Like this woman named Denise who was on her way to North Dakota and had her two kids with her. You know, I learned more about Denise on that train than I think I've ever learned from a fellow airline passenger. I mean, you just, there's sort of an unspoken rule. You don't talk. There's something different about being on a train with somebody than being stuck in a seat next to somebody on an airplane. And Eric, when you think about the scene where you wrote about, um, all of a sudden you decided, I'm going to be a connoisseur of graffiti. And you looked at a lot of graffiti. Your room at number 009 was right by the very back of the train. and, And you had that beautiful view out the back window as the tracks stretch into the horizon as you're you're zooming in the other direction like a movie that's always ending but never does yeah. and and it was nice i was the caboose of the caboose i said the very last yeah. car in the very last roommate on the very last car in the train you know it's a shame i think more people should mm-hmm. should experience this and it is good for the environment you mentioned that by going across country on a train my carbon footprint was smaller than if i had flown across the country or driven across this is travel with rick steves we're talking with eric weiner and Eric takes us traveling in creative ways through his writing. He recommends that we learn from the great philosophers and even travel to the places where the philosophers lived in order to learn what they have to teach us for coping with the din of modern life. Eric describes his own adventures in doing just that in his book, The Socrates Express. Eric also shares what he's learned in his world of travels in books called The Geography of Genius and The Geography of Bliss. And today we're talking about his article from a far magazine, which is called Amtrakistan. You can listen to the earlier interviews we've had from Eric, and you can check out the article I just mentioned from a link we provide with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. I don't know what it is about a train, but I I really find myself thinking more and thinking better. I, I, like you, I do a lot of writing on the road, and the train's my, my choice of transportation when it comes to writing and traveling at the same time. And it is interesting because you wrote a whole book about how philosophers and train travel, and, and which is often the case, train travel, go together. Your, your Socrates Express is about that. Talk about how philosophy and train travel are, are, are good partners. Well, they, they, they pair well, to put it in, in wine terms, because when, when we're traveling, what are we doing? We're trying to enlarge our world. We're trying to see the world with fresh eyes. And that's what all philosophers, from Socrates all the way up to you know the French existentialists, the good ones at least, this is what they're doing, is they're saying, question your assumptions. Um, you, you think you know what you're looking at, maybe you don't. You think you know what courage is, what justice is, what love is, maybe you don't. And likewise with the traveler, oh, you think you know Paris? You think you know London? You think you know Berlin? No, you don't. You haven't seen this. You haven't looked at it this way. You know, I realize it's a it's a subtle thing we're talking about, but I think it's I know it's real, and I've experienced it. That looking at the world with fresh eyes that both philosophy and travel encourage. Eric Weiner was a foreign correspondent for NPR, and now offers creative writing workshops in Bhutan, in Flagstaff, Arizona, and online. He writes about Amtrakistan in Afar magazine. There's more about Eric's books, including the Socrates Express, at ericweinerbooks.com. And Eric, you've done this 60-hour train ride. You went from Washington, D.C. all the way to Portland, Oregon. You step off the train, and I would imagine, like a sailor, you've got to kind of get used to solid land again. When you step it's off true. the train in Portland, what was it like? How, had you changed? What, what was your thought when you finally got to your destination? Well, I, um, out of habit, started to twist my wrist 
to look at my watch, which I do compulsively. And I stop myself. I'm like, no. What difference does it make what time it is, whether it's 9.20 or 9.40 or 10.50? So I caught myself. And I also felt that I had traveled somewhere, that I had traversed the land between Washington, D.C. and Portland, Oregon, and, you know, had that sense that I had somehow earned the arrival. We have all these unearned arrivals on an airplane when you fly across the country. I didn't really earn being in New York. I was in L.A. a few hours ago. But I felt like, darn it, I earned that arrival into Portland, Oregon. Because, you know, it's not the smoothest country, Amtrakistan. Um, it can be jolting and, and alarming and uh, and not always easy. So when you arrive, you feel like, yes, I've traveled. You know, the root word for travel comes from the, the same word travail. To travel was to travail. That's the way it has been through most of history. And Amtrakistan reminded me of that in, in, in a good way, though. I was I was happy to be in Portland in a way I would not have... I would not have had the same feeling if I had just disembarked, a, you know, the stale air of a 737 and and hopped in an Uber to my hotel. I would not have had the same sensation. How we travel to some place determines how we feel about the place and how we experience it. And in our modern insistence of being efficient and comfortable and not stressed, uh, sometimes that overrides the opportunity for travel to be transformational. And good travel should be transformational. And on a train, it's slower, but it's certainly more likely to be transformational if you're taking it like a philosopher. Absolutely. Eric Weiner, thanks so much for taking us to Amtrakistan. Happy travels. Hope to see you on the rails, Rick. Thank you. It's our 15th anniversary year, so on occasion, we'll revisit our favorite guest interviews from the archives. Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield joins us next to reveal what the view from the International Space Station showed him. And later, we'll get you ready to stroll the incredible sights of Renaissance Florence. We're glad you're with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What would it be like to take a single photograph of the Nile River, one that you can show the entire thing from its source in Central Africa all the way to the Delta on the Mediterranean? Or how might the way you view international politics change if you could get a good, clear view that included both Havana and Washington, D.C. in the same shot? Astronaut Chris Hadfield is one of the few people who've been able to enjoy these views of Earth from 250 miles up on the International Space Station. He was commander of Expedition No. 34 in 2012 and 2013, and he shares what working in space has taught him in his memoir. It's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. Now... He's published his favorite photographs of Earth from the thousands of close-ups he took from the space station. They're featured in his newest book. It's called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Chris Hadfield, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. It is my pleasure, Rick. Thanks. So you go around the world in 92 minutes. How long? You were up in the space station for, what, five months or something like that? Yeah, if you do the math, it's like 2,400 times around or something like that. A lot lot around the world tours. That is amazing. What drove you to become an astronaut? I don't think drove is the right word. It's more like what pulled me to be an astronaut. And it was watching the first two people walk on the moon. I Mm. I was a kid. I watched Neil and Buzz on the surface of the moon, and that night walked outside right afterwards and looked up at the moon itself. And it sort of just clicked in my mind that Mm. that impossible things can happen. Mm. And they happen when they just barely can. And so I just decided that night, wow, impossible things happen. Okay, I want to do that. How, How do I do that? And then it just became a pull or a draw 
through uh, the rest of my life, uh, just helping me make decisions what I was going to do next. And amazingly enough, flew in space three times. But you're Canadian, aren't you? Yeah. When, when, <laughs> when, good point. When Neil and Buzz uh, walked on the moon, there was no Canadian astronaut program, but the, no one had walked on the moon before that morning either. It, yeah. it was like permission. You know, That's it, pretty it was gutsy. Like, uh, I mean, Canada was, didn't was, even have a space program, and there you are, some <laughs> little kid, and you go, I can do that. Well, they were, they were gutsy too. And it was, it was immensely invitational, Rick. You know, it was like... Uh, when people really turn their minds to something and where the technology just barely lets them, I love magnificent it. things can happen. I was in um, Norway when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon. I was just a little kid. I was just a teeny bopper. And what it occurred to me there was actually, I, I think in retrospect, pretty profound. It occurred to me this is not an American, exclusively American accomplishment. This is a human accomplishment. And I think a lot of Americans might forget that. Yeah, it was the original reality TV. It inspired... Hmm billions of people. It changed the thinking of billions of people simultaneously. Yeah. There was never anything like it before. Yeah, it was a worldwide event. Speaking of billions of people, you produced a video that really went viral on YouTube. It's uh, David Bowie's Space Odyssey as an astronaut. Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. That is such a beautiful production. How did you do that? I mean, did you get? Did you have to get permission to do that, both from NASA and from David Bowie or his uh, his gang? Well, it started just as a project with my son. My son said, "Hey, a lot of people." Uh, we were emailing back and forth, and he was helping me with social media. He said, "Dad, everybody's asking for space oddity. You got to record space oddity." And I was like, "Why would I do that? The astronaut dies at the end, and nobody covers Bowie." But he convinced me to do it. And I got him to rewrite the words so the astronaut lived. I made a just it was just a father son remote project, like I was on a business trip somewhere, and we were uh -huh. emailing stuff back and forth. But when I recorded the vocal to it, just like a karaoke thing with uh, with Bowie in one ear, the vocal sounded far more evocative than I expected it to. It sounded much more interesting than I thought it would. And it just grew from there, and I got a couple of friends on Earth to put the um, instrumentals underneath, and then my son weighed back in and said, it's got to be video. So then one Saturday yeah. for an hour or two, I, I went around and made the video. And then the Canadian Space Agency uh, helped get all the video together, but they gave it to my son, who then edited it into that um, final product. And, and it, I don't think it's billions yet, but it's, no, it's but hundreds it's... of millions of people around the world have seen that video uh, through rebroadcast. It's amazing. You've had an impact with that video. I thought about it afterwards, you know, Rick, because when I did it, it was just, you know, I'm a musician. I recorded right. lots of music up there. But I think it tied art to the science of what's going on. I, uh, people have trouble hmm. understanding a space station or the 200 scientific experiments on board. Huh. But when they saw the, the iconic music, uh, sort of the almost um, prescient music and, and very well-known tune by David Bowie, suddenly in a new human place, yeah. in a, uh, kind of on a, on a oh, new yeah. place that we have built. It made it, I think, more real for people, or at least they understood it intuitively better. And it's just been amazing to see the reaction.
I watched that, that video several times. I was just so enamored with it. And then I watched it once just looking at the practicalities. I mean, when you're singing, you had yourself anchored to the, um, the closest thing to terra firma up there, to the floor of the spaceship with your feet under kind of a bar. And I saw that. Then you'd let go of that, and I thought, okay, Commander Hadfield's <laughs> going to take off. And then you sent the guitar going end over end all the way across, and then you swam through the air, and you grabbed it just before it would crash into the wall. And then you'd mermaid yourself right out of sight into the next floor upstairs. <laughs> that was so graceful. It was balletic. Yeah, your your verbs are all wrong, but they're very, very expl- <laughs> explanatory. Um, because you don't need to swim and you don't need to mermaid and, and you don't float up. You are weightless. It's magic. You're Superman. You know, you can fly. The things that look magical are, are like some sort of bizarre, mesmerizing special effect. That's just that's uh, the way normal life. Now that's, that's the way it is. That relates to something I, I learned by reading your new book, You Are Here. The whole notion of which way is up. You know, in my work, I'm always working with people's ethnocentricity. You know, yeah. the, the British don't drive on the wrong side of the road. You're just looking at it right. from an American point of view. They drive on the other sure. side of the road, right? Now, you've got something that's related to that, but it's even more fundamental. It's that what is really up and what is really down, and you challenge people to enjoy this photograph that looks upside down to us and resisting the impulse to turn it over. We want the world to look like a two-dimensional, north-up, clearly defined collection where each country is a different color. Right. That, that's how everybody sees the world for whatever reason. And, of course, it doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> and, and it's always orthogonal. You're always looking at uh, – when you look at a piece of paper, it's a straight-on view. But when you're actually looking at the ball of the earth itself, almost yeah. everything is on the oblique. It, it's at an angle. And so things are distorted. And, and north is never up. But I would send a picture to the ground, and immediately there'd be this hubbub on uh, on Twitter of saying, well, you, you, you got the picture sideways, <laughs> as, if, uh, as if I was completely in the wrong, and it just made me laugh every time. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're, we're traveling beyond orthogonality. And we're talking to Commander Chris Hadfield, who's spent, well, how many times? You went around the world uh, 2,336 times in 146 On third flight, days. All, all told, uh, 2,593, <laughs> I think, over the three space flights. Oh, yeah, you show off. I haven't even been around the world <laughs> once. And you do it in, you do it in 90, what, 92 minutes. Now, 92 do, minutes. do you ever think that 500 years ago, the 500th anniversary of Magellan sailing around the planet, you make 16 round trips in one day. Magellan spent a life... He died halfway through and it was still a success, you know? Yeah. Some of his crew made it the whole way. Yeah. You think about that actually, Rick, all the time. You look down... As you come across the Sahara, if you look right, you can see all the way down to the Great Rift and and Lake Victoria. And if you look left, you can see all the way to Cairo and the Mediterranean. Mm. You can see the whole length of the Nile Mm. just by sweeping your head left and right. (laughs) And when you think of the thousands of years of history along that river and the explorers and trying to find the source of the Nile and Blue Nile and all that – and you you just move your chin and and it's right there. And and you cross the Atlantic in just just a few minutes and – the all-pervasive feeling of the historic struggles that have allowed us to understand our planet, they're right with you the whole time. You really see a global perspective, but with a huge respect for the history that got us where we are. You talk about just how your perspective changes, you know, how, how small we are, but, but also just the slice in time, too, to kind of appreciate geological time as well as uh, how little we are in the big scheme of things. The geology of the world... It, 
you know, we live in the little pockets of cities and, mm -hmm. and almost everybody lives in a city. So you forget the vast swaths of the world mm -hmm. that are, are harder to live in, but that are mostly exposed rock or exposed sand or, or someplace it's really hard to build a septic system in a house. Yeah, and, really. But those ones are the ones you're constantly looking at when you're in a spaceship. You see the huge barren swept rock that is on the edge of, of say, the Sahara or mm -hmm. by the Gobi Desert as you're coming down out of the Himalayas or the empty quarter down on the on the peninsula it's it's vast and it's surreal looking at when the old the sculpture is time and wind mm. and an immense dryness has turned it into shapes that are that are otherworldly and that's most of what you see of the world is, is the nature of it and only occasionally do you see a, a yeah. pocket of, uh, of a bunch of people living oh, together? Oh, man. And to, just to think of it as the sculpture is nature, not Michelangelo, but nature. <laughs> and Chris, you're talking about the, the sweep of things. I, I love the way you commented and you, you proved it with a photograph, a beautiful photograph, that you can see Havana in Cuba and Washington, D.C. at the same time from, what are you, 250 miles up in the air? Sometimes you get really enamored with something that's straight below you. But the beauty of the space station is we built this huge big bulging blister of a window. And so it's got a, a great big window that faces square down to the earth, earth like a glass bottom boat, but it's got windows all around the side. And you need to remind yourself to raise your eyes to the horizon because yeah. that's when suddenly you can see from Havana all the way to DC or mm -hmm. or you see from the Yucatan all the way up to coast. You can follow the, the San Andreas Fault its whole length just by tracing it with your eye mm -hmm. as you see so much of the world in just a careless glance. Chris, in your book, you talked as a photographer about kind of getting all excited. The weather's going to be good and, and we're going to see the Nile way up at its source or are we going to check out Ayers Rock in, in Australia? If we get a glimpse of it, the weather's good, we're in the right track. And then you're going at 17,000 miles an hour, right? So if, if you don't yeah. get it right, not only do you have to go around the world again, but you have to wait for the weather and the right trajectory and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it must have been really fun for you to be aware of what's coming up and anticipating with your camera, but then realizing if you blink, you miss it. Uh, what's it like going 17,000 miles an hour? I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have a look at our ground track for the day. I'd look at where the 16 orbits, because the world turns underneath you. So every time you come around, it's it's a new part of the world. Mm -hmm. And I would look and see, oh, today we're going right smack dab over top of whatever, the Panama Canal. Everyone wants to get a picture of the Panama Canal on a sunny day because it's almost always cloudy somewhere there. And so I would wait and I'd come around, I'd set my alarm on my wristwatch. And so somewhere about Hawaii, you'd, you'd go ripping over to the window and you'd get the camera, you'd be looking and you'd come down crossing um, Central America and you look ahead and you go, ugh. It's cloudy again. And, and then so you'd wait another week. But we've been living on the space station for um, 14 years. And the beauty of being up there for months and months at a time is you can say, oh, I didn't get it today, but I'll get it next month when, when, when things line up right. Chris, when you were taking this beautiful photographs that fill your book, who owns these photographs? Does NASA just let you take the photographs and do with them what you like? What kind of legalities we, we all, are there? We all own those photographs. They, they belong to everybody. And that's, in fact, my wife and my profit from the book all goes to, uh, to charity because those pictures belong to everybody. Is that because you're a nice guy or is that because no, that's no. the requirement? Uh, I, no, I was a government employee using government equipment on government okay. time. But in truth, they ought to belong to everybody. Imagine if, you know, those pictures that the guys on the way back from the moon where they saw the whole globe yeah. for the first time. That's not a personal photo. That's a photo for every person oh, that exists. I like and, this book and even there's more. there's no difference. I just suddenly <laughs> like this book even more. This is beautiful. <laughs> even before Chris Hadfield's video of Space Oddity went viral on the Internet, he was a member of an all-astronaut rock and roll band, 
He's got dozens of space videos up on his own YouTube channel. And even the airport in his hometown of Sarnia in Ontario is named after him. Colonel Hadfield's book of Earth close-ups from the International Space Station is called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. It's published by Little Brown and Company. Now, the title of your other book is The Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, and then the subtitle is What Going to Space Taught Me About Ingenuity, Determination, and Being Prepared for Anything. Of course, you can look out that beautiful window and enjoy the view and ponder the world, but this other book deals with something even broader. Talk about the value of going to space from just being back on Earth and and better understanding life. In order to do something as complex and as challenging and as right on the edge of, of our capability, but also as dangerous as flying in space, you can't just do that using regular ideas and regular behaviors and regular ways of dealing with stuff. You kind of need to exaggerate and change how you do things. I observed over the 20 years, especially speaking in schools and to groups over those 20 years, I observed that the things that we have had to learn how to change have practical application for everybody. How do you separate danger and fear? How do you prepare for something that is one chance only and optimize your chances of success? How do you do all that stuff? And so the purpose of that book was really to be useful, to try and tell some space stories, but use them really to let people maybe pick out some behaviors or ideas for themselves that might help them then face life on Earth more successfully. Wow. So it it occurs to me, this is a travel show on the radio, and we're talking to one of the ultimate travelers, a man who's uh, lived in the space station. And just like travel on Earth gives you different perspective, traveling over Earth gives you even more of a different perspective. And then when you get back down into the rest of your life, you've got skills that you learn from that travel that can help you live better. I think it gives you not just the visual perspective, but visual perspective is important, of course. I think it helps you appreciate the the finer points of everything that you look at, but also more of a a temporal perspective, a perspective of time, a a perspective of distance, uh, maybe an increased feeling of contentment. And oddly enough, Rick, to go around the world a hundred times, it increases your optimism. You see the world for what it truly is, the immensity of it and the age of it and the patience of it and Mm. and the inherent beauty of it. And it pulls away your focus from the the little nitnoy day-to-day stuff that's going on in your household, on your Mm -hmm. street or in your your little town or whatever, which of course is important, but it's often blown way out of importance. And travel um, helps, I think, settle things into their proper settings and and the amount of travel that that we do on the space station, suddenly you see the whole world that way as as one place with all of us uh, together on it. And you come back with a great sense of calm and optimism about the future of the whole thing together. You see things in a more true perspective. In an honest perspective, not as distorted by a television camera or a, or Media. an excited reporter right. or or a transient impression of it. And that was really the motivation in my second book. Yeah, you know, I took forty five thousand pictures, mm-hmm. and I tr- I tried to choose the hundred and ninety that just showed the world without telling people what to think. Just say this is actually how varied and interesting and magnificent and mm. ugly and beautiful and and complete our world is. And think about it. And where you are is just a part of that one long joint continuum. Again, we've been talking with Commander Chris Hadfield. His book is An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And his new book is You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, an amazing collection of photographs from the International Space Station. Chris Hadfield, thanks so much for joining us, and happy travels. Same to you, Rick. 
Chris Hadfield's book of photos he took from the International Space Station is called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Since we recorded our interview, he's also written a children's book about facing your fears. It's called The Darkest Dark. Commander Hadfield posts sightseeing photos from high above the Earth on his website, where he also teaches a course about space exploration. It's at chrishadfield.ca. We come back to Earth next to explore Renaissance history on the streets of Florence on Travel with Rick Steves. It was the right time and the right place, Florence, Italy in 1401. That's when the decorative brass baptistry doors were dedicated at the cathedral in the center of town. And it tells us that the classical ideals of the Greek and Roman world were being reawakened in what today we call the Renaissance. To help us explore the sites connected to the greatest achievements of the Renaissance as we stroll the streets of Florence, we're joined by tour guide and art history scholar Anna Piperato. Anna's an American from Massachusetts who studied art history in Italy. Her studies awakened a love of the stories and art of this period, so she makes her home now in Tuscany. Our interview was recorded a few weeks before the COVID pandemic started to change our world. Anna, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rick. Buongiorno. So what is the Renaissance? Well, the Renaissance is is a period of time that the word itself means rebirth, but it's a rebirth of classical culture in a very specific time and place, Florence in the 15th century. So it'd be the 1400s. And, yeah. and why Italy? Why Florence? Well, gosh, there was something in the water, perhaps. <laughs> well, I should say the wine. The wine, right. <laughs> yes, but it was really a time of economic prosperity under mm-hmm. that family that we've all heard about, the Medici. And when you have a town that's in a period of relative peace with relative economic prosperity, then you have the time to make art. So you got this big banking family that mm. has lots of money and, and art is cool and they hire, they, I guess if you pay money for artists, you get more people becoming artists and more focus on that. Yes, and then of course you get competition and competition breeds creativity. Well, speaking about competition, mm. so they have the new baptistry and uh, the leaders of the city say, well, they don't just say, have Pedro do it. <laughs> they say... Let's have a competition. Exactly. And in the year 1401, we have the baptistry is a much, much more ancient building. It's huge uh, in the center of Florence, right by the cathedral. And they wanted to make doors. They said, well, what kind of doors shall we make? Let's have a competition. And the best metalsmiths in Florence and in Siena, in Tuscany, entered this contest to make uh, a quatrefoil with the scene of the sacrifice of Isaac. And we have two panels remaining, so you can be the judge, but I'll tell you who won. It was Lorenzo Ghiberti. Uh-huh. What's a quatrefoil? You're an art historian. You lost me there. <laughs> <laughs> well, quatre means four. So a yeah. four-leaf kind of this, oh gosh. What like is a four-leaf clover of art of, or something like yes, that? Yes, inside of which you have to make a scene. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's, um, it's... A gothic it, quatrefoil, we call it. Uh, and there, the big deal was Ghiberti was merging mathematics with art in order to show three-dimensionality on a two-dimensional surface? Yes, I mean, so they were relief panels on the door, so there's not a lot of three-dimensional space, but he Mm -hmm. was able to show the scene, the sacrifice of Isaac from the Old Testament in a very dramatic way, and also, the Florentines are known for being a little bit stingy, and he was able to cast this bronze quatrefoil in only two casts, as as opposed to seven, which is the other panel that... so part of the reason he won is it would save the city money. Of course. (laughs) Wow. A banking city is very aware so we got things. this Ghiberti baptistry doors mm. and so on, and they say that kicked off the Renaissance. How could that event kick off the Renaissance? Well, it's hard. With all of these movements, it's hard to say when something begins or ends. And of course, mm-hmm. we could say the Renaissance began even at the end of the 1200s, early 1300s. But then, you know, 1348, 
Some little rats went by, fleas actually, and the Black Death kind of just put a pause on oh, everything. So they were they're on the verge of having this cultural explosion, yes, this yes. new smart age. Yes. And then the plague hit, and it knocked everybody back. Exactly. And it, and, uh, it was impoverished, and then we don't have any money or concern for great art here. We exactly. Gotta, we got to survive. Right. So when Florence, especially, was able to pick itself back up again, some cities like Siena never fully recovered, but Florence right. did, and uh, they went far ahead, shall we say, than where they were before. Wow. Okay. Well, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anna Piperato. She's a guide from Italy, and her uh, her specialty is. Florentine art and Renaissance art, and uh, we're going to go on a Florentine Renaissance walk now. And Anna, uh, if you're going to take a walk across town, let's just do a little short walk and we can piece it together. Where should we start? Well, I think a great place to start would be the Piazza Santissima Annunziata. Ooh, say that again. I love that word. Piazza Santissima Annunziata, the piazza, the square of the Most Holy Annunciation. Okay, so this is the square of the Holy Annunciation, and why would we start there? Well, it's a great place to start, because we've just talked about the doors, and I mentioned that another panel survived. It was by a guy called Brunelleschi. Uh-huh. He lost the competition, and rather than say, I'm going to become a better metalsmith in Florence, he's like, I'm out of here. Ciao, ciao. And he leaves. He goes to Rome, he goes on a walkabout, and he discovers the classical orders of ancient Rome, and he comes back to Florence, and in 1419 he is commissioned by the Silk Guild, which also employed metal metalsmiths to make the Hospital of the Innocents. And the Hospital of the Innocents is the first example of Renaissance architecture that we have in Florence. And it's not just a beautiful building, but the function of the Hospital of the Innocents really embodies the humanistic spirit that is now running through Florence. Humanism. Yes. Because I love this term humanism. It's part of it's part of the Renaissance. It's it's part of the birth of the modern world. Yes. Uh, before it was the opposite of humanism. We're just little worthless creatures yes. at God's mercy, you know. And now there's a sort of a pride and a dignity. It's not anti-religious, but it's no. a new way to look at things. What exactly. is humanism? Well, it kind of does what it says on the tin, right? Human. Yeah. If God made us in his image, then surely some part of us must be divine. Right. And the perfect shapes, of course, you know, the triangle that represents the Trinity. But if you look at the Piazza Santissima Annunziata and the Hospital of the Innocents, right. you have the square and the circle. And just think of the Vitruvian man. And if you go to Italy, look at your one euro coin. Because there's a man who fits perfectly in a square, which is finite, but perfect, mortal. And a man also fits perfectly in the circle, which is infinite and divine. We are both human and divine. I love it. I love the way you teach that. Now, from there, you look down the street and you see this dome that just towers like a monster over the city. It's just like, it's massive compared to the architecture. And you think, 500 years ago, that was really massive. So let's walk to the dome and tell us about that. So it's wonderful. From that piazza, you walk down Via dei Servi and you see that imposing dome, which was by Brunelleschi again. So he leaves. He's not a metalsmith. He becomes the greatest architect of Renaissance Florence. And his mm-hmm. style goes throughout the centuries, really. He's, he's, he's classic. And the dome was a feat of Renaissance architecture. Uh-huh. The cathedral itself is the second cathedral on that same site. And that was Gothic, basically, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was Gothic. started in 1296, and it was enlarged when the Florentines heard the Sienese wanted to make a larger cathedral. They said, no, we're going to make a larger cathedral, but problem, we have this massive church and a massive hole, and we don't know how to make the massive dome that will cover it. So they built the church with the hole, not putting a Gothic spire on it, but waiting until they could do something more modern. Yes, and we even have a 14th century huh. fresco that shows the dome that the Florentines knew they wanted, and it wasn't until Brunelleschi, after he did the Hospital of the Innocents, in 1420, he said, I know how to do this. 
Now that dome was quite a, it had quite an impact because I remember when Michelangelo was building the dome mm-hmm. in uh, in Rome for the Vatican for the Pope. Yes. And Michelangelo was a Florentine. He said, I can build you a bigger dome, but it's not going to be more more beautiful than its sister in, exactly. in Florence, in my hometown, the, the Dome of Brunelleschi. And Michelangelo, you have to imagine when you're taking this Renaissance walk, Michelangelo took the same walk. Florence was his teacher. All the architects and the artists that we see, he saw as well. So he'd be inspired. And right, the Dome is, is this medieval or this, uh, this Christian sort of ensemble. You've always got the church, you've got the baptistry, and you've got the bell tower. Yes. And this is quite a bell tower, Giotto's Tower. Yes. Giotto started the bell tower in the 1300s, and then, mm-hmm. of course, we'll he died, as people <laughs> sometimes do, mm-hmm. uh, and it was continued, and it's this massive, massive bell tower that was then finished at the end of the 1300s and in the 1400s decorated by the likes of Andrea Pisano in the 1300s and Donatello in the 1400s. So people don't realize it, but they're walking under an, an outdoor art gallery. Each niche yes. is with a statue by a very important a sculptor. Probably today they're modern replacements to they get are. them out of the acidic air. And one thing we should mention is just behind that Duomo, there's an amazing museum, the Museo del Duomo, the museum of the cathedral, where the original art from that great church and the bell tower is kept. And they've just redone it, and it's absolutely spectacular. And that's where the original doors of the baptistry are located, the original statues from the bell tower, and all sorts of wonderful things that show you how Brunelleschi made that dome, including simple inventions like like pulleys with gears in them so that the pack animals wouldn't have to be taken off you know, yeah. to go up and down. It's a it was... fascinating, intimate look at that amazing cathedral. And the amazing thing to me is half of the tourists are lining up to get into the Uffizi Gallery and the Academia yeah. to see David. And the, the Museo del Duomo, the, the museum of the cathedral, I mean, there's people there, but it's never a long line to get in. No, it's and it's wide open. absolutely worth your time to go there. I highly recommend it. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we are taking a Renaissance walk, and our guide is Anna Piperato. Anna lives in Siena. She guides all over Italy, and her specialty is Italian art. Now, from the Duomo, we're going to walk down to the river. And uh, as we walk, we find uh, sort of the, the main pedestrian drag mm-hmm. of, of old Florence. And it haps, happens to be uh, an old Roman road, doesn't it? Yes. In fact, part of the foundations of the cathedral lie on the old Roman walls. So mm-hmm. the road that we're going to go down now from the cathedral is called Via dei Calzaiuoli. Wow. Calzaiuoli. It's very difficult to say with all those vowels. I just call it Celts. Via That's, Celts. You can call it what <laughs> you want to call it. Okay. Calzaiuoli. So we're walking down from the cathedral mm-hmm. on an old Roman road. This mm-hmm. is a grid plan. And yes. Because the Romans always had the same kind of rectangular Yep. fortified town with uh, two streets that cut through it, yep. and on the middle would probably be the Forum. Exactly. That's exactly where it was. And, and, and as a matter of fact, you come to the Forum. Yeah, so if you go down the Via dei Calzai Wali, uh, well, actually, you would go down Via Roma to get to the Forum. That makes sense, doesn't it? But basically, the Forum is right where that the Cardus uh, and the Decumanus would meet, mm-hmm. the east-west road and the north-south roads. And uh, up until the 19th century, you could see the old uh, Roman Forum. But they decided to redo everything after unification and make, you know, Florence well, modern. Because Florence was the capital of the newly united Italy, and they needed something grand. Exactly. So they cleared that out, and you've got this uh, huge sort of modern triumphal arch there today. And it's a, it's a cool square where everybody gets together. There's a carousel. There's strolling thieves. Yeah. There's outdoor cafes. It's quite a place to see and be seen. And a little Roman column reminding exactly. us. There's... I think it's the only Roman thing you see when you walk around town. Yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. yeah. But there's a church right a little farther down the Via Calzeole, uh, which is very important for art historians. It's in every art textbook. Oh, it's a fantastic building that, surprisingly, some people often miss. Right. It's called Or San Michele. 
mm-hmm. Or San Michele, and it's this huge rectangular building filled with niches with statues on them. And that was really uh, a place for the guilds of Florence because we had the Republic of Florence that was ruled by the guilds, these mercantile uh, Like, like unions, like labor unions. Unions, thank you very okay. much. Labor unions. So the guys that make the shoes and the guys that uh, were exactly. the carpenters and exactly. the guys that were the roofers. And uh, they wanted to, sometimes they wanted to advertise. Yeah, they wanted to advertise, you know, what they did, who their patron saint was. And so they had this idea that the niche would be dedicated to the patron saint of the guild. So, for example, mm. the Armorer's Guild, their patron saint is St. George. And Donatello made a wonderful St. George. And he originally would have had a helmet and a sword so you could see what the Armorer's Guild was capable of okay. making. So if you steps past that church, we get mm-hmm. to the big square, yes. and in front of it is the palace. Yes, we come to Piazza della Signoria, where there was the Palazzo uh, della Signoria, which we now call Palazzo Vecchio, which is still the town hall of Florence today. And you'll recognize Michelangelo's David right in front of it, and it's a copy today. It's ugly, if I may say, because the real David mm. is in the academia. You know, it's funny because it, it wouldn't seem ugly on its own, no. but you all know what the real David <gasps> looks like. And then you look at this thing, and it looks like somebody's spit it out of a little uh, toy. The real David breathes. He's got blood coursing through those veins. But that's the David was a symbol of the Republic of Florence, right? The little guy against the big enemy. And so he protected uh, the Republic of Florence for many, many years. So that was an apt mascot for Florence, wasn't it? I mean, it was Florence against the other city-states. Back then it was city-state against city-state. And they had their own pride. And and David, you know, the shepherd boy that slayed the giant. Because God was on his side. Exactly. And what's funny is we, we talked about humanism before. And, of course, David is an Old Testament uh, hero. On the other side of the door of the Palazzo Vecchio, we have Hercules, who's right. a pagan symbol. But he's, he's, he, he relates to Christianity because he's also half man and half divine. We're exploring Florence, Italy, where the Renaissance was born with art history tour guide Anna Piperato. Anna offers virtual online Tuscany tours and classes from her home base in nearby Siena. It's at SiennaItalyTours.com. Our show archives include conversations about Florence and the Renaissance with author Salman Rushdie and historians William E. Wallace and Miles J. Unger. You can hear them in the Travel with Rick Steves archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Anna, we've got the the Palace of the Medici family. That's the, the, the banking family that kind of paid for all of this stuff to a certain degree. And now just a few steps away is the river. What are we going to find when we go from the Medici Palace down to the Arno River? Okay, so then you're going to follow David's gaze, as it were, and kind of walk through uh, this big piazza that's the piazza of the Uffizi. Uffizi means offices, but it, of course, is now the collection, the greatest collection of Renaissance art So that in the was world. the offices of the city government. Yes, then. the offices of the Medici and of the government. Okay. And then one of the first art collections in the world, which now, thankfully, is open to the public. It's in the running for my favorite art collection anywhere because I love Italian paintings. That's and you got something. it. And that's, <laughs> and that's just filling the whole courtyard up on the high floor. Exactly. But we're going to keep walking through that mm-hmm. courtyard now. And you're going to pass through a lot of, you know, statues of famous men, famous Tuscan men staring down at you because the Renaissance is not just art. It's not just the four Ninja Turtles, you know, Michelangelo, Donatello, Leonardo, and Raphael. (laughs) But you also have these magnificent patrons of the arts like Lorenzo the Magnificent, the right. name, right? And a you guy have, with quite a, uh, no problem with his ego. Ex- exactly. And uh, political science, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. We all know that word Machiavellian, okay. right? The yeah. ends justify the means. He was Florentine. He was Florentine in the 15th century. Right. He knew Lorenzo the Magnificent. 
Edison and his family. Um, you also have, of course, later um, scientists and inventors. You and got Dante. You got, oh, Dante, the father of the Italian language. Right Dante Alighieri. And Americo Vespucci. <laughs> I, I've never heard of him. <laughs> exactly. And so this stuff is not just Italian. This is part of our American history as well. Because uh-huh. when Amerigo Vespucci went to the States, it wasn't the States then. Right. But when he went to the New World, and in fact, uh, our continents were named after this Florentine. Yeah. So we finally then pass that courtyard and we belly up to the banister and ahead Mm -hmm. of us is the Arno River and we look to our right and we see that the bridge that people just love to see, the Ponte Vecchio. Yes, and Ponte Vecchio, the name doesn't actually mean anything interesting. It just means old bridge because there would Uh have been many more bridges along the Arno River. But of course, during the Second World War, uh, it was the the, the Germans, they destroyed the train station and the bridges because they had to destroy all means of communication, as it were. Uh, But even the German general said, no, this bridge is too beautiful to destroy. So they had the buildings on either side bombed Hmm. so the bridge itself was preserved. But as a means of passage, it was no longer viable. So I'm right. not used to thanking Nazi generals, but mm. there's one guy we can say, uh, yeah. Danke. Had some or let's g- say Grazie. Uh, he had some good taste in art anyway. But. Okay, good. So uh, that really is a short walk, and Very it covers uh, really so much of the art that, that really inspired us to, to move forward into the modern age. Indeed, indeed. And it's a very pleasurable walk. And if I may, do it first thing in the morning and watch the city wake up with you and you can have all those things to yourself. And again, imagine yourself back 500 years seeing these things come up for the first time. And everything we saw was out of doors. You could do it after dinner, too. Totally When everybody's back in their hotels, it's cool. And you can review all of these great, great souvenirs of the city that really kicked off the modern world as far as art and high culture goes, Florence. Anna, it is just exhilarating. Your enthusiasm and your passion for this is contagious. I want to go to Florence. And if I was with you and you wanted to take me to one little moment, one site, indoors or out, where I could really be inspired by how important the Renaissance was, how, how beautiful it was for civilization, where would you take me? This might be one of the hardest questions anyone's ever asked me But I love the Bargello. The Bargello is a sculpture museum, and there's a statue in there by Donatello, uh, the greatest 15th century sculpture, and it's one of his Davids. It's the bronze David, so you have this little boy who has just defeated the giant. He's naked except for boots and a hat, and he is the most Italian David you've ever seen because he's just full of confidence and, yeah... I did that. And the statue is not perfect. There are he's holes in it. He's a little bit feminine, and yeah, he's still confident. But he's prepubescent, it's and he's... Just, he's just sort of exquisite. He's exquisite, even though he's not perfect. He's perfectly imperfect, because Donatello was someone who was taking risks with his bronze casting. It's the symbol of the city. It was commissioned by the Medici. It was meant to be seen in the courtyard of the Medici Palace, a symbol of Republican Florence, a symbol of the rebirth of classical culture, and just a really gorgeous thing to look at because life, as messy as it can be, is also beautiful. And the Medici did actually really believe in that. And this is art for art's sake. It's a celebration of what exactly what you said, humanism. Humanism. Okay, it is also propagandistic. We're talking about a major family here in the 15th century, but we can also look at it art for art's sake. It's fantastic. The message is there and the beauty is there. David by Donatello in the Bargello. Yes. There's artistic Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Kazmura Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Amara Kitnikon, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
Thanks to Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland and National Public Radio in Washington for their help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Grazie mille. Ciao. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.